Today's guest works with executives, influencers, and thought leaders to become the face of a movement. Prior to becoming a communications expert, he worked on the editorial staff of Penguin Random House, where he worked with New York Times best-selling authors. He has been featured on NBC, Palm Springs, Forbes, Fortune, and Inc.com. Welcome to the show, Neil. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Toby. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so, so much for joining me on this episode of Mirror Talk. I really appreciate your presence here right now, and I'm looking forward to everything I'm going to learn from you or everyone is going to learn from you in this episode. So I would love us to just start with, you know, with your journey. Your journey took you from, you know, 330 SAT Vivals Core to helping New York best-selling authors to, you know, write great books and to reach out to their audience. Um, can you share this story with me? How has your life journey and your career journey been so far? One of the things I should probably, should probably, I don't know if I should say it that way. One of the things one would expect me to say, given that I used to be a book editor and that I am a communication expert now and all of that, is that I started off as a child loving reading and loving books and always having my face in the book. And the truth is, is that that's completely the opposite of the truth <laughs> in that I hated reading. My dad would say that as soon as I got my first book report in second grade, as soon as reading became work, I completely checked yeah. out and I had no interest oh. in it. And mm -hmm. that remained true right up until my early 20s. And it's kind of funny, Toby, I got through so much of school and got decent grades, even though I never read a lick of anything. And I just I just wow. really didn't want to do it. I just hated it. I, I finished some books for school because they were required and I was going to be tested on them and stuff. But it was a mm -hmm. real grind just to get me in front of a book at all. But then as I finished college, I started discovering some some kind of light science fiction-y kind of books. And so I was reading those. And then when I graduated, I moved to New York City and I found that I really struggled in the city. It's big and loud and noisy and dirty and so much more so on the subways specifically. So whenever I got in the subway, I just couldn't stand being there. And I needed an escape. And this is back in the late 90s where we didn't have smartphones and stuff. And I'm grateful we didn't because I found my escape through books. Yeah. And I just started reading a bunch of stuff all the time. And then I discovered this one book that a friend recommended to me called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. It's a novel. And I had this kind of, oh, it's all going to work out in the end kind of way of looking at the world until I read that novel. And that shattered that whole thing. And I was left there in my early 20s believing that so many, you know, this kind of angst-ridden kind of what's it all mean kind of 20-something thing that so many of us go through at that age. And yes. I just became hyper curious about how language, how the written word in this case could impact me so much. And I just read everything I could find by John Irving and other authors and just really tried to put those pieces together for a couple of years. And then that got me my first editorial job at Penguin because I had developed a lot of critical thinking around writing and books that it got me the job and I worked there for a few years and that was basically my apprenticeship for everything else that followed. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. I mean, your first book, you know, motivated you to read more books, yeah. to find out, you know, the meaning to life and then that way, yeah. and also find out the, the power behind words, then that way you became, you know, an editorial staff of Penguin. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just kind of funny how it 
just worked out that my struggle with reading, I mean, the first time I took college board kind of entrance exams, what we have in the States called the SATs, I got a 330 verbal score, which meant that 95% of all the other people who took the SATs that year did better on their verbal tests than I did. I was in the fifth percentile. I mean, that was abysmal. I mean, you barely, I mean, you, you get 200 points just for signing your name correctly. And so I, my, my brain was mush and it really took a rebuilding of those, those parts of my brain to really comprehend language again and to really think about it in a meaningful way. Thankfully I did and, and it, it set me up with a career. I was really quite fortunate in that regard. Yeah, and if you look back right now, like at this moment in your life, would you say you are reading more books than you ever had read in the past or you still like read, you know, a few books from time to time? You know, it's an interesting thing, Toby. I'm going through kind of a, a strange, a strange chapter in my life around books in that because I've helped so many authors and worked on so much content over the years, and I certainly have my way of helping people with their content. When I read a book that is just not, it, it's just the author really hasn't done their due diligence to take care of me as a reader. I just don't really have much of an attention span for it. So my way of consuming books these days, especially nonfiction books, is to listen to them on audiobook and then listen to them at advanced speed, like 2x or sometimes 3x speed, because that seems to be the only way I can take it in. So it's almost become like this occupational hazard of mine that when I read a book, I can't take my my editor or book collaborator's hat off just to enjoy the book. It's a lot harder these days. So today, right now, this day we're talking, yeah, it's a little complicated, my relationship with reading right now. And yeah, because it just a lot of it just feels like work, even though I don't want it to. So, so yeah, can you imagine? yeah it, it'll probably shift again later in life, but that's where I'm at right now. Yes, I can imagine you like reading the, reading, sorry, I can imagine you reading a random book and, you know, just saying, and editing it like, you know, unconsciously, like, oh, that's wrong. Yeah, that's supposed yeah, to be the yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, this could be, this, they could have told this story here and it would have been so impactful and sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little tricky exactly. that way. Yeah. Yeah. And why, why do you think, you know, content is about empowerment and not just about information that it gives? Right. Right. Well, let's put this in the context of public speaking and speaking at a conference specifically. So let's say it's a three-day conference on some subject matter that you as an attendee really want to learn a lot about, and you've paid hundreds of dollars, if not more, to be at this conference. And over the course of the three days, there's going to be like, I don't know, like, let's say there's a dozen different speakers you listen to in keynotes and breakout sessions and all of that, right? Mm, there's yes. an abundance of information there. There are so many different things to listen to, so many different things to watch and to take in and absorb. If you go about your 45 minute, let's say you're going to be, let's say somebody's giving a 45 minute keynote at that conference you're going to, and they deluge you with like five or seven or 10 different insights or facts or tips or, or concepts that you now need to digest amidst all of the other things that you're still digesting throughout the conference. Are you going to take in any of it? Or are you going to be overwhelmed by what we can call the show up and throw up? 
There's just so much stuff being thrown at you in that 45 minutes that the information almost becomes, or not even almost, it basically becomes a burden rather than believing from that same 45 minutes that what the speaker talked about could apply to you. And you could, you could integrate that in some way and make it actionable once you leave the conference and change your life for the better. And so the difference between providing, when creating our content and providing information and empowering our audience is really the difference between whether they raise their hand at the end, whether they say, yes, I want to go deeper with this. I want to try this. And so that's what so much of my work is about is helping people to create content that doesn't deluge the audience with information, but rather empowers them to believe in a new possibility because people are empowered, not by knowledge, yeah. not by that which they know is true, but rather that which mm -hmm. they believe is possible. Yes, yes, that's so beautiful. And that, you know, relates to what I read on your website. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put the link in the show notes of this episode. I read that, you know, your vision is about, you know, helping authors and helping speakers to have an attentive, transfixed, hungry and empowered audience yeah. at the end of the day. So and uh, you've already explained a little bit on this already, but can you like advise me on how I can achieve this outcome? How can I achieve uh, you know, an audience that is, you know, transfixed, that is hungry. And at the end of the, you know, conversation or this episode, for example, is empowered by this, you know, conversation that we're having. Yeah, of course. Like, I think of a client of mine from a handful of years ago now who headed a program at a children's hospital where I used to live in L.A. And it was a unique program because it gifted books to children staying at the hospital and it sent volunteers out to read bedside and there was a special therapeutic library as well for children and families struggling with specific issues around illness and whatnot and i knew the founder and director of the program because i was a volunteer there at the time and i was one of the people going and reading bedside to the kids but because we knew each other and because she knew about my approach to messaging and communication she hired me to speak she hired me because she was speaking, excuse me, she was speaking on a TV show on cable and she wanted to just to get some messaging because she knew she was only going to have a few seconds to get in her stuff. And I was really proud that she really got it in, in in just like a 10 or 15 second response to a question that the, that the TV personality asked her. But with all of that said, and with that context, she then showed up at the, at the program, like at the hospital where I, I showed up for my shift one, one morning and I found out that she was really stressed out. I said, like, why is she stressed? And because she's going to be presenting for 10 minutes in front of a group later today. And she just, you know, she doesn't like speaking in front of people. And mm -hmm. so I went up to her and I asked her what was going on. And she's like, well, it's just every time I talk to these people for like 10 minutes, even it just like, I bore the pants off of them. And it's like, they just glaze over and, and then they just politely clap at the end and the whole thing. I was like, all right, well, would you like to work out what you're going to say today? And she said, sure. And so we worked out what she was going to say and I sent her on her way. I saw her later that afternoon. And I asked her how it went and she said that they were held wrapped at attention from the moment she started speaking. And instead of just politely clapping at the end, they rushed up to her with business cards. Multiple people rushed up to her with business cards. And one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that conversation we had earlier that morning only lasted two minutes because we had worked out something that she was going to say when we had worked on her TV show response. We had worked on a certain ingredient, and then over those 10 minutes, she created context for that ingredient that just held everyone wrapped in attention from the beginning, but then really convinced them that change was possible by the end. And so in that one experience, Toby, we can unpack a number of different things that she did, but at the heart of it is that we didn't just have her deluge them with information, again, about the program. We kind of built up to a climactic moment, almost like a movie. We built up to a climactic epiphany type of moment, this light bulb moment for the audience that then led them to saying, oh, I want to know more about this. I want to work with this person and all of that. Yeah. So it's really like, Is instead it, of just here's, here's the thing about it and here's the thing and here's the thing, it's like, let's build up to this climactic moment hmm. and just land it. Wow. Yes. Is that what you refer to as the elevator pitch? The elevator pitch winds up being a specific example of how we could use this same concept of having this kind of climactic epiphany-like moment. And so what I, with your indulgence, I'd love to share with our listeners what the technique is, what this magic thing is that we worked yes, out yes. several weeks prior to that day and she did on TV and then she did in this talk and can also show up in an elevator pitch, right? Yes, please, yeah. And this is what I call a silver bullet. Okay, and a silver bullet, mm -hmm. to capture this, there's actually this movie that came out of the United States about 10 years ago called Moneyball. And Moneyball is about Major League Baseball here in the States where the Oakland Athletics over in the Bay Area in California were this small market team. Their payroll was about a third of the cost of the New York Yankees. Like the Yankees were winning all the time because they had the most expensive players and stuff. And Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill are in the movie. And early in the movie, Jonah is like this economics guy. And he's telling Brad Pitt, who's the general manager of the Oakland A's, that there's an epidemic failure in how most teams are managing the team. They're, 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 the baseball management is just making this, this big mistake. And what they're focusing on is buying players. The best players are going to lead to the World Series and, and winning and all of that. But what he says is you need to buy runs. You don't need to buy players, you need to buy runs. And so what he does there is he distills all of Moneyball, which is a pretty complicated economic theory, down to one idea. And we can take that idea and say it in a single sentence. The key to winning at baseball is not to buy players, but to buy runs. And that's what we can consider a silver bullet, which is a simple cause and effect sentence that when we take one action, like buying runs, we get one outcome like winning at baseball. Yeah. And so yeah. what my client at the children's hospital had and that we were able to base that 10 minute talk on was her own silver bullet. And it was simply literacy and heal. Three words, and that silver bullets can be all different lengths. That one just happens to be really short and really quite concise. But what she did, she built up to that as a climactic moment. What we falsely think of books as our entertainment. But what we've learned here at this program and what we've demonstrated time and again 
is that actually it's a healing modality, just like medicine, just like surgery. We've learned in this program that literacy can heal and then describe what the program does to help facilitate that healing. And, and that is what made everyone believe that change was possible. They had the idea, they had the secret sauce right then and there. And with that secret sauce, they were, they were gonna be able to solve not just problems around the hospital, but all sorts of problems in their life. And that's why they rushed up with business cards. Hi friend, are you enjoying this episode? We would love to hear from you. Kindly send us a feedback. Are you following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, maybe on YouTube and other podcast platforms? Are you following us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook? We would love to connect with you on all platforms. Links and further details are available in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. And this also helps, you know, a presenter to become, you know, unignorable or the presenter will not be, you know, so boring for the audience and the person will be so interesting to listen to because you've built up to that level right. where the interest of everyone is, is so high that right. they want to listen and follow through to the end. That's yeah. right. You get, you build up to it. And the listening through to the end is a very important point you just made just there now, Toby, is because when people say, I'm going to teach you five things you need to know about business, then you, you have this kind of moment of friction where it's just like, okay, I'll get through all this. Hopefully one of these things will work for me and all of that. But if you say, like, I was really creating a lot of mystery around this magic formula for our listeners before I actually delivered what she said. And I got people, in theory, I got them to say, oh, what's he going to deliver on that's going to be so great that it led to such an amazing outcome? And there's even probably skepticism or something like that. But there's a question mark. And then there's anticipation. Oh, we'll see what this guy Neil has to say about this, this secret thing that he's talking about and it's building up so much. Yes. But that anticipation keeps people listening, keeps people invested in wanting to know more. And so the, the larger mistake is to show up and throw up, to provide all this content, to talk about what you're going to talk about and then talk about it and then remind them of what you just talked about, like it's some essay in the high school composition class or something like that. But if you make it more like a movie, you make it more like with a climax, like the silver bullet becomes a climactic moment of discovery and realization. Mm-hmm. They're not only going to be sitting on the edge of their seats the whole, like leading up to that moment, but then they'll get chills because the silver bullet is structured in a way that suddenly empowers them in a way they weren't empowered a moment before. And that's why they highlight the silver bullets in the Kindle editions of their eBooks that's why 46 of the 50 most popular TED Talks have a silver bullet. And that's why we see these silver bullet-like quotes from, from ancient thinkers like Socrates and Aristotle. Socrates says, all of wisdom begins in wonder. And that's a silver bullet. And, and Aristotle said, the aim of art is not the outward appearance of things, but rather their inward significance. These are silver bullets that have stood the test of like 2,500 years because mm-hmm. this cause and effect sentence is so powerful. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And so now they're always interested in you know, in creating this kind of silver bullet. Is there like a way you could help you know a listener out there or people out there who love to you know work on this method for their next presentation or for their next book or their next you know 
public speaking. I'm so glad you asked, Toby, in that what we have here, because we've already talked about Moneyball, we also have yeah. an exercise that I'm happy to share with our listeners that I call, we can call it the, the Moneyball exercise, quite honestly, in that Jonah said there's an epidemic failure in how these baseball teams are doing everything. And so we can do a fill in the blank where we start with two sentences and then we just fill it down to one sentence. And so this two sentence exercise is the epidemic failure in how, and this is the first blank, the epidemic failure in how audience, and then the next blank is tries to achieve a goal is that they, and then the third blank is false solution. But the real way to achieve that goal or solve that problem is to, and then the final blank is true solution. So I, I just, it's hard to describe parentheses when you're, when it's easier when you read it, but I'll say yes. it all again in one flow. The epidemic mm -hmm. failure in how most audience solves a problem or achieves a goal is that they false solution. But the real way to achieve, solve a problem or achieve a goal is to true solution. And so mm -hmm. if we use the money ball example, the epidemic failure in how most baseball teams try to win is that they buy players. But the real way to win is to buy runs. Okay. And then we can turn that in. There are lots of different formats. Like there, like as I was just describing, there are lots of different formats for the silver bullet. But the simplest way to start is in this formula. The key to solving problem is not false solution, but true solution. As in, the key to winning at baseball is not buying players, but buying runs. So, and so our listeners can play around with that formula just to get across the thing that if you want to solve this problem or achieve this goal, don't do it this way. Do it this way instead. And it's not the only way to find a silver bullet, and it's certainly not the only way to write one. But yeah. it just it's I find it's a really nice entry level way to get people started on this path. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes people could be a bit confused, I would say, like not knowing what the first solution is and what the right solution is. You no, know, sometimes it could be interchanged sometimes. But mm -hmm. I, I think for that one it's some guidelines also, like to know, okay, I think this is the right solution, but then um looking at all of these um, rules and all these guidelines, it's probably not the right solution, but the first one. And, you know, are there like, you know, ways you could help us to know what the right solution is to be? Like, you know, the first, the, the, the false um, solution mm -hmm. in, in your example was, you know, buying players. Yeah. And the right one is buying runs. For a novice like me, I'm gonna say, I might say, oh, the false, the false solution is to buy runs and the right solution is to buy players. I see. Yeah. Well, I, a lot of it comes down to, a lot of our listeners are likely experts in their field mm -hmm. and they've been doing what they've been doing for some time. And so the epidemic failure exercise winds up being particularly particularly useful if, if there, there's this kind of like tisk tisk, no, that's not how you do it kind of quality in how they see other people, their competitors, other people who do what they do or solve a similar problem in a different way. A lot of people yeah. will think, oh, I don't agree with that at all. That's just not a good idea. And they understand what they don't approve of. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's a pretty, it's, it's interesting, Toby, that it really elicits conflict, 
right? But it, it elicits conflict in, in one's mind in creating this sense of disapproval. And the reason I do that is because there's emotional charge in that disagreement. And, and really what the idea there is that contrast creates clarity. And so we become clearer about our stuff when we think about the solutions of, of which we least approve. And so that's really just, a, it's not even, it's certainly not, I'm not saying to anyone to go out and start criticizing other people and trashing other people's stuff. I don't want people to go around creating conflict and stirring things up in that way unless they really can hold space in a masterful way and really take care of people. Because I really believe effective communication values the recipient over the sender. Right. And so I don't want people to stir things up explicitly. This is just a brainstorming exercise to be able to stir that up. And so if someone's an expert in their field, they can think about the solutions of which they least approve and use that as the jumping off point for that false solution. Solution. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yes. So how can we, you know, communicate complex ideas in ways that you know everyone can understand? Like now we know we've been trying to contrast and put things into sure. order. And then there are people out there that we want to communicate, you know, very complex ideas with, and we want our goal, our, our you know, our goal is for them to understand this complex idea right. in the best way possible. So, is there are there like ways we could do that to you know communicate these ideas to them and make them understand it? Before he passed away, my father was a retired school teacher, school teacher, and he mm -hmm. just to, in his retirement he just decided to to substitute teach. Right, in other, in other countries, it might be like a casual teacher or something. Like that. You just go in for the day, and you teach for the day, and then you leave. And so he got a reputation as being a really cool sub because he would engage with the kids and really help them to feel seen and stuff. So it, it was a good gig for him in his retirement. But one of the problems he encountered at the high school he was working at is that substitute teachers weren't getting keys to the classrooms they worked in. And so when they arrived at the classroom, they had to wait outside in the hallway along with the kids to be let in by the custodial staff. And this really drove him crazy because he felt it undermined his authority. He, he, he honestly just felt embarrassed by it. And he, when he had been a full-time teacher, he often confronted the administration a lot. He was very powerful and influential in the teachers' union. And he kept giving the administration a hard time and stuff. And that was his inclination was to, to antagonize the principal and, and demand that they get the subs get keys. And, but he also, by this point, he knew my approach to communication. So he said, all right, son, I need help writing an, an email to the principal in a way that you would want me to write the email. And so the first line of the email wasn't, we de we're subs who demand get keys because our authority is being undermined or anything like that. Because did the principal care that much about the perceived authority of his substitute teachers? Probably not. In that industry, most people don't really care that much. They're mostly just babysitters. And so instead, that first line of the email was, we are a group of subs. We are a group of substitute teachers who are concerned for the safety of our students. And what he goes on to describe in the email is how the previous year, there had been a lockdown, like some sort of violent threat at the school. And there were kids who had asked to go into a different classroom that could be locked 
because they didn't feel safe in a classroom that the sub who didn't have keys could lock themselves and keep them safe. And so we didn't make the email about his undermined authority. We made the email about the safety of the students, which is a problem that the principal would care about solving. And so I've taken you through the original question you asked me, Toby, was how do we ultimately get people to understand complex ideas and all of that? Yes. And the reason we I told you that story is because people are most likely to embrace a solution when it's provided within the context of a problem they care about solving. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. a complex idea will benefit, of course, from the simplicity of the silver bullet technique, but our audiences will become invested in learning about it and even having patience for some of the more complex notions if we first present it in the context of a problem they care about because that will help them to get invested. That'll give them more emotional, like there'll be a greater emotional investment essentially is what I'm saying, mm -hmm. to learn whatever it is we have to say because we framed it in that context. And so yeah. that, that's really a powerful tool for helping these more complex ideas to take hold in people's mind. Present in a way that, you know, it's in a form that is attractive to the person that's going to solve the problem. Yeah. 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 They're like, oh, I don't quite get it yet, but I really want to. And they do that. And then the simplicity of the silver bullet winds up being also a very important tool in helping folks to understand the complexity of an idea. If you distill it down to one essential cause and effect sentence, then they will be at least primed to learn all the other more granular stuff. That's going to that's going to ultimately help them. So in, in that case, I'm just sorry, your your father was like a leader or an influencer, you know, as a substitute teacher, yeah. right? Then yeah, yeah, college. yeah. In a way, <laughs> you wouldn't think that you wouldn't think that as a substitute teacher, but mm. yeah, that's exactly what he became. He became an influencer. Yeah, I know. Looking at you and your life so far now. <laughs> making you know how fun life is you you are a change maker who boost you know entrepreneurs and leaders influence through sure. public speaking that means you, your people you know like your father in, in back in those days you know to be able to speak publicly and you know address issues and situations mm -hmm. exactly so can you can you like share some tips from your own expertise and your experience on how we can boost our influence through public speaking or through you know um, tackling world problem, for example. Tackling the, the word problem. Is that is that what you said? Yes, yes. Or maybe problems in our community or oh, problems in the our world. Got it. Got it. Yes, yeah. Yes. What I'd like to say is that, and we've we've covered this in so many words, Toby, is that hmm. that basically movements are driven by the empowerment that others feel in response to it. Right, that that one of the things that took over the world winds up, wound up being the a number of years ago was the ice bucket challenge, and the ice bucket challenge was started by a few guys who had the disease that wound up supporting ALS, right, which is commonly known in in America as the Lou Gehrig's disease, which is kind of a baseball thing because Lou Gehrig was this famous baseball player who suffered from ALS, and they did the ice bucket challenge, and I don't have the statistics on this, but my guess is that many people who participated in the ice bucket challenge 
probably didn't even know much about ALS or didn't even know what it was for, but they were just being tagged by friends on social media and they poured water on themselves and, and then they tagged other people and all of that. And then the whole thing took off and they made many millions of dollars in support of ALS and they've actually made some real headway in tackling that disease. But the reason why I believe that took off as it did is because the the founders of that movement, who weren't necessarily trying to start a movement, but they they just inadvertently did with their own ice bucket challenge. What they ultimately did was set everyone else up for doing a thing that was just accessible enough for them to participate in it. A big mistake I see a lot of people doing is that they make it too complicated and difficult as an initial step to get involved and to participate but it was easy enough for people to pour water on their heads and get a little attention for it and all of that. There are lots of things at play as to why that was such an effective campaign, but there were a lot of things about it that were just so immediately gratifying and, and accessible for people that they were willing to participate. So if you want people to really get involved and to participate so as to shift things that are happening in the world, as you originally asked me, Toby, then I really encourage people to be super accessible in the first step, the thing that hooks others in. There will always be time for them to read more, to watch more, to get more involved. But that emotion, being emotionally compelled to get involved more starts with the things that are most accessible. Mm. And what would that be, for example? What are the most, is it like creating a challenge, like the ALS challenge, or what, what do you, would you describe as being accessible? I would say that something as simple as asking someone to donate a dollar when they're checking out at a store. It's just like just asking the question, you already swiped your card, would you just like to add a dollar to this cause? That's good. And whenever I order, order takeout food from a, a website like Grubhub, it asked me at one point, would you like just to round up to, to, the, next, to the next dollar amount so as to contribute to this charitable cause. I'm like, well, sure, of course, and all of that. Mm -hmm. But digitally, it just becomes a matter of maybe piggybacking onto other existing platforms that make it easier for people to donate a little bit of money. Or if there is just a simple thing that like a specific thing that you want folks to share just as a first step, just watch this one minute thing and then share it with one person you feel actually not not just your whole network, but just share. Think of one person who you think would enjoy this video, and and share that mm. with them. And these are these are specifically yes. around the digital side of things. But then there 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 are mm. other things as well. It's just a matter of something super easy, like like you like one of my clients told the story about how he wanted to support. He wanted to do like a toy drive for Christmas. And one of his faculty members, he's a school principal, and he was talking to one of his faculty members, a young teacher, and he's like, well, the problem is if you give him the task of going to the store and buying a toy and bringing it to the school, then very few people will do it. But if you just do a wish list on Amazon and just say, buy any of these things, they've already inputted their payment because they have an Amazon account. It's super easy. Just go click on a thing, purchase it, and it's super easy. And then it's like, so what are you guys doing here at this school? Oh, this is what we're doing. Oh, can I help? And that low-hanging fruit, that super accessible thing at the beginning 
got them on board with being more involved on a more profound level moving forward. And that's how you start the movement. You start in the super easy thing, and often that will be a digital solution of some kind. And then you, you cultivate the relationship and help them to work their way into helping on a more profound level moving forward. Yeah, that, I got it. I mean, you know, starting the movement with a very accessible and easy step yeah. will help us, you know, to convince and change the world with our ideas. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. Well, so I, I would love to like learn more from you. Like you know, you are a VIP contributor to Entrepreneur.com, for example, yeah. and you've done you've worked with Penguin um, Random House already, and you you know as in in um, editorial staff. I would love to know how to write, uh, you know, a very electrifying story that you know sticks the audience or the the reader to my book or to my speech, for example. When I was in fourth grade, Toby, we did a production of a Walt Disney cartoon on stage, like a short version of this Walt Disney cartoon called The Jungle Book, based on Rudyard Kipling's novel. And he, like, like I was given the role of, of King Louis the Orangutan, and I had this big song and dance number, and I was a total ham, and so I would just kick my legs all over the place, and it made my class laugh. And it would make the, the audiences laugh as well because I was so over the top. But the first time I wore a costume was the first time we actually performed in front of half the school. And I was playing this big hairy ape, and so I had these big furry gorilla slippers on. And so I'm kicking my legs every which way as I always had throughout rehearsals. But in the middle of my number, in front of the very first audience I performed in front of, my left slipper fell off and landed in the pit between the stage and the audience. And I had the fourth grade equivalent of an oh crap moment. I was like, oh my God, I lost my slipper. I don't know what compelled me to do it, Toby, but a moment, a, a split second later, I just reared my right foot back and hurled the other slipper off my foot and it flew halfway across the auditorium and everyone went berserk. <laughs> And I, I know that it went really landed well because we would get like letters from the kindergartners and first graders in the coming days. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, it, it was like, like those things, they draw pictures and on construction paper and then write the letter on the construction paper. And they, several people said how they loved how the lion, cause they didn't know I was an ape. They said they loved how the lion was yeah. uh, kicked off his slippers kind of thing. So it really went, went over well. And I did it every performance thereafter. And what I learned from that moment is that sometimes the greatest catastrophes are the greatest opportunities for success. Hmm. Now, that was a story from beginning to end. It has a silver bullet, right? Sometimes the greatest catastrophes are the greatest opportunities for success. But what is it that gave it the silver bullet? What is it that made it a story worth telling? And this is to circle back to your original question, like how can we tell better stories as entrepreneurs and in this way or that way? And yes. it was the moment that Slipper fell off. It was the moment of, un of the unexpected, the moment I didn't see coming. Because what did it force me to do? It forced me to adapt. I then kicked the other Slipper off. And so that adaptation is what led to the silver bullet, the lesson. And so if we're looking to mine out stories about our life 
and to really hit our audience with a really powerful story and really draw them into our world, we infuse our stories with the unexpected. And that's what gives it its juice. That's what makes the difference and makes it instead of just a meandering narrative that we tell, something that really sucks people in. Hmm. Wow. So we have to you know, have that whole combination of, you know, having the, the silver bullet and having and changing, you know, that unconducive moment in our lives into something beautiful that's, you know, portrays a message to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we circle back to my client at the, at the hospital, hmm. she started, I had her start with a story. She usually buried that story halfway through or something. And I, we started... And we didn't have her say, oh, thank you so much for being here and stuff. Because that's another tip, by the way, for our listeners, is that for live for, for, for presentations, most speakers will say, oh, it's so nice to be here and thank you so much. And, and they'll give accolades to the person who just introduced them onto stage or whatever. And that just squanders the tension at the beginning of a talk. But if you harness that tension and you start with a story, you don't visit it at all. You just look at your audience for a moment and then just start you're going to suck them right in. And so she started with a story about a boy the night before. She's like, I would have liked to have prepared more for this presentation, but last night I was with a family because the young boy was close to death and tells this whole story about how she brought in a book featuring SpongeBob SquarePants and how when she got into the room, everyone was in this daze. And by the end of the story, everyone had converged on the boy's bed and we're all listening intently to the story and it was this wonderful shared moment and he did eventually pass away but he wasn't he didn't pass away that night or the next day he, he stayed with us for a few more months after that and that sets up this silver bullet that literacy can heal there was a healing moment in just simply reading a story to a family who really needed to experience something else in that moment and so we start her with that story it draws everyone in on an emotional level yeah. And then she provides the big idea further along. And it really winds up being this great way to draw people into your world and also deliver on a really big promise. Like, I'm going to tell you something amazing and then to do, actually deliver something amazing. Yes. Wow. These are very awesome things. And no, no wonder, you know, you have clients who have appeared on Dr. Us show or Ellen's show yeah. and, you know, using, using these tips to, you know, really deliver your message in a way that it keeps the audience attentive. That's so, that's so awesome. That's so great. Yeah. So I appreciate that. So for some, for someone out there who would love to like connect with you, work with you and also, you know, become better to, you know, attract, you know, or to, to attract audience and be able to deliver the messages, the ideas properly. What's the best way of doing this? What's the best way of connecting and working with you? You can find me at neilcanhelp.com, N-E-I-L-C-A-N-H-E-L-P.com. And at the bottom, you'll find a contact page. And there is also a form if you're interested in just having a conversation. You can, you can actually go right to neilcanhelp.com forward slash apply. If you just want to go right to talking about how this can help with your speaking and your messaging as a whole. Yes. Well, as, as a closing remark, do you have anything you'd love to tell listeners out there that we'd not cover during this conversation? Is there like some insights or some tips that you, you'd love to tell someone out there who wants to go into public speaking but does not know how or is scared or is, you know, still having some doubts? What I will say to everyone, Toby, is that if, if you're feeling doubt, if you're feeling 
if you're feeling some uncertainty around your value, I'd like for you to think about who you've helped to create real transformation in their life. What is there before? And what was their life like before you helped them? And what is their life like now after you've helped them? And if there is that clear before and after, then you clearly have something of value to share with the world. And frankly, depending on your, your viewpoint, you might even owe it to others to, to no longer be silent. But at the end of the day, if you're concerned with having the exact right words and the exact right message, the value of your message isn't based on what you say, but rather what your audience does once you're done saying it. And so if you have something of value that someone can actively implement and participate in in their life, then be sure to share it with them. And also know that an imperfect words that lead to imperfect action is still leading to action in the end. Wow, that's so beautiful, Neil. Thank you so much for this awesome episode. Thank you for everything you shared with me. I learned a lot and I hope every listener out there also learned a lot from this. Thank you so well, much. Well, it was such a delight, Toby. I so appreciated your questions. Wow, wow. you made it to the very end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful for your time, your love, and your contributions. Subscribe, like, review, and share this podcast. God bless you. Bye. Bye.